You are listening to the Conquering Everest podcast. This is episode 49. Welcome to the Concrete Nevers Podcast. My name is Brian Talor, and I just want to say thank you. Thank you so much for choosing to spend a bit of your day here with me. Now, if you haven't already, I'm going to encourage you to go out and hit that follow button. That way you're never out of the loop. And when a new episode drops, you'll be notified. And, uh, you know, if while you're at it, I mean, you know, I mean, since we're clicking buttons anyways, right? Why don't you go ahead and hit that share button? Post, uh, post this episode out on your social media timeline. Make sure you tell all your friends and family about this, this wonderful podcast called Conquering Everest that's, uh, you know, out here trying to make this world just a little bit of a better place and hopefully provide some hope to those who need it the most. Now, in today's episode, I have a conversation with Jojo Marie Shalasi. And Jojo had a very unique circumstance in her life, one that I don't know if I would have made it through. See, JoJo became stricken with a neurological condition which left her bedridden for more than four years. I like to be in bed. I like to get my sleep. But JoJo had to be there for four years. And during her painstaking physical and neurological rehabilitation, well, she lost everything she knew about herself. And, uh, you know, she now tells her story. She, she's better. Spoiler alert. She's better. <laughs> but she tells her story, uh, the story of her journey to authenticate and share the, the tools that she learned uh, while spending, spending those four years bedridden, uh, tools that she learned to self-generate inner peace and begin, begin living her best life free of fear and falsehoods. This is an interesting conversation. You do not want to miss it. So here's my conversation with Jojo Marie Shalasi. This is Jojo's story. Jojo Marie Shalasi, welcome to the Conquering Everest podcast. Thank you so much, Brian. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for letting me be a part of it. For sure, you've got a, a really good story, and um, uh, but I want before we get into all of that, I want to give you an opportunity to introduce yourself to our listeners. Um, so, if you would go ahead and, and introduce everyone to you, I am JoJo Marie Shalasi. My brand is simply JoJo Marie, and I am a motivational speaker, storyteller, and recent author. Okay, and that's and what and, and go ahead. Let's mention the book now. We're gonna have a link and everything to it now. But I published uh, last year. I published my personal memoir. It's called My Missing Piece: What I Learned Through 1,460 Days in a Bed. So it's my story from uh, you know the the ashes to the to the phoenix, right? There so. you go. Well, let's go ahead. Let's let's start off. Let's talk a little bit about that. Um, as I've read your bio and we talked previously. I can't imagine going through what you went through, but I want you to be able to tell it in your own words. So let's uh, let's go back in time a little. Well, I always call this my Cole's Notes of the War and Peace story because it is long. <laughs> it started, uh, my book is my, um, my story from when I was three years old, my earliest childhood memory, until the age of 51. During that time, when I was three years old, I lost my father to a tragic um, accident, a highway traffic accident. Uh, there was a level of fear that was instilled in me in childhood at that time, and I carried it forward 
all through my life. And it absolutely affected every aspect of my life at every age. It was like kind of walking with cinder blocks. It was part of me every day. Mm. And then I suffered for 30 years with a neurological condition that was left undiagnosed. And it was dismissed. It was put under the carpet. I was basically told it was stress. It was hormones. Um, I was emotionally charged. I had had a baby, um, you know, but I knew there was something wrong. I kept saying, this is, this just isn't normal. So my world kept getting smaller and smaller through the years, through the decades, until one day I became finally um, bedridden and I couldn't move my body uh, without violent, violent illness, vertigo, headaches, nausea. And um, I was like a rag doll. So people say, oh, you, you couldn't get out of bed because you were weak or dizzy. That's not what it was. I couldn't get out of the bed because my brain and my body no longer worked um, together. There was no longer a, a clear connection. So I equate it to, um, do you remember back in the day when we had the old television sets and mm -hmm. you had to, to dial and you'd get those U UHF H F channels yep. and it was a snow screen, right? That's basically what my mind was, what my brain was, because what was coming in through my eyes, when it got through my brain, it was a snow screen. There wasn't a, a clear signal to tell my brain what was happening, where I was in space and time. And the information coming uh, out um, of my eyes was a jumbled mess. So basically, I was diagnosed finally, after many, many years with a vestibular disorder. And most people who don't know what a vestibular disorder is, mm -hmm until they lose it <laughs> and you realize okay. how, how important it is. So your vestibular system is located deep, deep in the brain through the inner ear in the colloquial system. And it basically is always recalibrating your, your brain and body. So as you move your arm, as you move your pinky, as you go to lift your leg, your vestibular system is constantly recalibrating and balancing you. So I lost a third of, so one third of that brain died. So it was similar to, um, it was similar to a stroke. So a part of the brain died and you have to rehabilitate by doing very small minuscule movements over and over and over again until a new part of the brain will take over. So um, for me, it was, I'm, I'm trying to think off the top of my head. I think it was about uh, a year, year and a half before I could sit up in the bed. You know, mm. then it was you know, how do I move my legs at the same time? It was, it was a very long um, process. So besides doing that, I also had to learn to multitask again. So for me to wash the dishes, I can't, couldn't just wash a dish. I had to actually say, I'm picking up a dish. I'm washing a dish. I'm placing the dish to the side. So mm -hmm. it was, it was a very long sorted process during this time. Um, I lost everything I knew myself to be and to be a part of. My marriage of 22 years collapsed. I lost my business. My grandmother passed away. Uh, finances were done. Um, it was really a point in my life where everything that I had ever been fearful of my entire life and all that fear that I had carried with me in childhood, it kind of hit critical mass. So it hit critical mass emotionally, but at the same time, my body was going through this 
this incredible crash through my central nervous system. And it was like this apocalyptic moment within me. And it really put me in a position where I had to choose whether I was going to live or die. Mm -hmm. And what I had been doing in the past wasn't working. Um, through my time in the bed, I, I made the decision to, to live. I, I decided to take a different path. And in the book, that's what I talk about. It's, it's basically choosing to live through four years, you know, over 1,460 days in a bed with a bucket by my side, not being able to move, no TV, no radio, no computer, no telephone. Uh, I was literally on my right side for over two years, clawing at a wall, trying to get out. So, mm. and, and how old were you when the symptoms started to reveal themselves? You know what? I can go back as early as age 17. I had okay. had a bicycle accident. And at 17, I had crushed um, uh, some teeth. There was jaw impact. There was some nerve damage. And I started with headaches. I started just not 100% at 17. Um, and then I ended up with um, a minor concussion. Um, I had a very stressful life. I had a very stressful marriage. Um, I was sleeping in various precarious uh, positions because I... I had um, a spouse that snored, so I would sleep in the basement, I would sleep in the car, I would sleep in a shower stall in the basement, mm. anything to try and get sleep. And that, of course, was doing damage to my neck, my cervicals. All of these things over time is what really, you know, chiseled away at that vestibular system. It, so is that, you know, is physical impairment what generally would cause that type of ailment or oh oh absolutely be, okay. i mean i mean first i mean I'll, I'll full disclosure i'm not a doctor none of this is medical right. advice I'm, I'm not pretending to know you know um the ins and outs to any large degree but i can tell you that i've been told that yes my injuries impacted and and severely impaired my vestibular system yes mm. once you put emotional stress onto that it's the perfect marriage for the perfect storm. And because I had that for so many decades, you know, they, they equated my vestibular system to be like a porcelain vase. So when I had the bicycle accident, that was the first crack. You know, I had a, um, the concussion, that was another crack. I had the stress, you know, of the marriage, another crack. I had all that fear I was carrying with me, that anxiety uh, from childhood, that was just, you know, uh, a multitude of, of veins cracks throughout this whole vase my whole life until one day the vase said, you know what, we can't hold ourselves together anymore. And it just fell to pieces. And when you ended up being uh, bedridden, when that process started, so like there, there was no getting out of bed. If you like, oh. you, you couldn't do anything for yourself. You couldn't use the bathroom or get up and get a no. snack or anything like that. No. It, so you, you kind of explained what that feels like a little bit when you talk about everything being kind of snowy and, um, you know, like kind of the old TV. And, and and the only thing I can compare that to, and this is nothing but something that drives me crazy, is I have tinnitus. So I have ringing in my ears. Yep. And and that goes on and on and on. And it, it drives me nuts. But I can block, the, I can block that out eventually. Mm -hmm. um, but for you, it was just like 
well, you you couldn't really see or or because when you talk about everything is kind of snowy coming in, is it just no no you know what Brian you can see I I could see <clears throat> in rehabilitation so seeing movement that wasn't there so sitting here looking at each other our eyes are taking in a tremendous amount of information right, right? and it's going making sense of it through many different systems I sure uh, the screen was taking this information in but it didn't make sense it was like all garbled so my brain couldn't make sense of it so i i can remember specifically standing before i was bedridden my world had become smaller and smaller so i went from sleeping upstairs to sleeping downstairs because i thought i'm not gonna be able to make the stairs one day then i i went from driving locally to not driving at all from stepping outside to never going out from being in the living room it was too big i had to i had to be in a little alcove you know where we uh put a bed and before i got in the bed permanently i can remember looking at the floor thinking i have to sweep that floor and i started crying because i couldn't figure out how i was gonna hold the broom move my body and collect the dirt at the same time how how was i gonna orchestrate that my my yeah. brain couldn't wrap itself around. I could see everything, but nothing made sense and everything was overwhelming to me. So when people would say to me, you know, just get out of the bed. Well, by the time I was bedridden and I had woken up May um, 2012 and I could not move, it's because the connection had, it. it it's kind of like a wire, right? right. It just... It, I shorted out. So when I tried to sit up, first of all, yell. But besides that, I was like a rag doll. Like I couldn't, I couldn't do it. My, my body kept collapsing every time because the communication longer there. Mm -hmm. So you know, it when I say a, it doesn't look like a snow screen, but the information is that of a snow screen. If that makes sense to you. Yeah, no, it does. It's, it makes me curious about, and I don't know, as we think about the conscious mind and the subconscious mind, um, and then the physical brain itself, was there anything to be learned out of this that, because when, when, as I know, the, the brain, you have the conscious mind, which is you and I talking and, you know, me asking questions, things like that. And then you have the subconscious mind where all of those, um, you know, how I talk, my mouth opening and words projecting out, that's the subconscious mind's routine. So it sounds like the subconscious mind still knew what to do, but there was this, like, it was almost kind of like a wire got snapped and it couldn't send mm -hmm. that out to the rest of your body. Is that kind of how you know it to be or? Yeah, I've never thought about it like that, but yeah, that's, that's basically it. Because when I say, um, people would say to me when I was rehabilitating, when I was learning to walk again, because sitting up was one thing, but then I had to learn how to sit up and move my body at the same time and move my head. That mm. was like, that was a lot. That was a lot to take in. So people would say, well, I don't get it. What's, what's your brain doing? I don't understand. And I said, well, you know what? Think about saying the alphabet. That's the best way I can equate it. And, and I'm talking about four years after rehab, I was like this. Mm. Uh, th this was progression at this point. But if you said the alphabet, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, right? Rolls off your tongue fast, mm -hmm. 
rolls off your tongue easily. You don't even have to think about it. Now, think about saying the alphabet backwards with the letters, <laughs> yeah. with, right? With the letters upside down. And you look oh, at yeah. it and, and you go, okay, I gotta, I gotta think about this better. And I have to put a concentrated effort into making sense of what I'm seeing right now. That's what it was for me, whether I was sweeping the floor, washing the dishes, uh, holding a pen and writing again, um, walking and turn. That was a trip. That was, you're on a roller coaster because your equilibrium, everything, you, the brain, neuroplasticity is an amazing thing, but the brain, even though it will take on a new task after it's been rehabilitated, um, it will fight every step of the way before it says, okay, I'll do it. So you keep doing it and it goes, no, I'm not doing that. No, I'm not doing that. No, I'm not doing that. And years later it goes, oh, okay, hmm. I give in, I'll do it. And you were in bed for four years, you said? You had four years of being... Four years. Four years. <laughs> it's a, long time. It's a long, time, long time to sit with yourself. <laughs> well, that's that's where my next question's going is <clears throat> I'm... You're laying there. The brain is not functioning as it should. I, I almost, when, when as you describe it, I, I start thinking about, you know, the three-lane highway they're doing construction on, and they merge three lanes into one, and there's always that, like, cluster of cars, and then one gets to go through, then the next one, and the next one. Um, for Were you able to do anything, like, write, read, any of that while you were in bed, or were you just completely trapped in your own no. thoughts really it, i mean but i imagine imagine you had a nurse or someone there that would make sure because you had to eat and you had to drink and things like that um like were you have, aware of anything that was going on around 24 hour okay. oh i was grossly aware of everything that was going around me i i almost wish i wasn't oh, yeah. you know i think it would have yeah made that's it that's oof. You know, it was, uh, I was trapped in a body and a brain that would not work. So yeah, I, I had 24 hour caregivers. Um, I, like I said, I did not have um, very little telephone. Once in a blue moon, I could manage a very short stint on uh, a landline, not a cell phone because that was too much for the brain. Um, no radio, no TV, no computer. Um, I basically just laid there 24 hours a day, seven days a week with myself, with my fears. Um, those fears I had in childhood were terrifying. And when I, when I talk about them in the book as a little girl, I describe them as monsters, right? Not the, not the warm, fuzzy Sesame Street ones, but the dark lurking ones that you never knew when they were going to come out. And when I was in the bed, all of those fears just bubbled to the surface. So in our lives, when our fears come up, what do we normally do, right? We distract. Right. Everything's about distraction and run. Distract and run. And you well, couldn't. I can't do that anymore. So what I had been doing for 40 some odd years, I could no longer do. I couldn't run. And the fear intensified so badly. I would tremble so bad that my practitioners had to literally lay on my legs to get me to stop shaking. And the wall that was next to my bed, I scratched it down to the drywall screws with my bare hands because I was trying desperately to claw my way out of a body and a brain that was terror terrorizing mm. me basically it was like trying to escape alcatraz 
then I was clawing my body. I, I can remember one day I, I had ripped my arms and my legs just raw and I'm bleeding everywhere. And I'm thinking, I don't feel any of that because mm. the emotional pain superseded the physical. Can we talk a little bit about childhood and where some of these fears came from? Are you comfortable with that or? Sure, sure. Um, so you, you lost know, your father at an early age, so you didn't have, um, so at three years old when you lost your father, was that something that um, sometimes, well, you know, when, when a tragedy happens to a young child, you hear people say, well, good thing they're young and they're not going to remember a lot of this. Was that oh, the case for you or no? <laughs> no, you know what? We underestimate children. Yeah. We as underestimate their intelligence, their emotional intelligence and what they're hearing, seeing, and absorbing at any given time. And I was three years old. My father was killed in a trucking accident on, uh, on a Toronto highway. And I was told, now, see, I'm, I'm always hesitant when I tell the story because I would never want people to judge my mother or the, the adults in my life. I believe everyone was doing their best at the time and everyone was carrying their own emotional burden. But I was never told my father died. I was told that he went to work. So for a child of three, in my mind, if daddy can go to work and not come home, mommy can go to work and not come home. Mm. So in my head, I was terrorized because I was going to lose my mommy. Um, I cried for her constantly. I needed to be by her side. I was always in the sick room at school um, because in the middle of the day, I think, oh my gosh, she's not with me. She's at work. She's going to die at work today. Um, and that's what I carried every single day. So as a child, it, it grew from that, right? So as a three-year-old child, the, the, this fear and this mummy's not with me and mummy's gonna die. But then as a teenager, it that fear translates into different parts of your life, right? In different ways. Right. And I, I never, you know, could focus at school. School was um, a constant struggle for me because I, I never had focus on that because my mind was in catastrophic circumstances that I had already created that I knew I was going to have to deal with at some point. So, you know, my, my childhood was, you know, that, that fear really took over everything in my life and it caused a fear of abandonment. Absolutely. Um, I can remember even just before I got married, I was afraid that my husband was going to die before I married him. I said, I'm going to be a widow before I'm a bride. Um, it, it translates differently from childhood to adulthood, but it, it's there and, and the root is definitely the same. How old were you when you discovered that uh, your father had actually passed away? Um, I knew, like I say in the book, I knew he was gone. I knew he died mm. at an early age. I knew like probably five, but I didn't know how because nobody talked right. about him. It was like he went into a black hole, got swallowed up, never to be heard from again, never to be discussed. He did not exist, basically. So I could never ask. I couldn't go up and just say, so where is daddy? And what happened to daddy? Um, it was a taboo topic. So I knew, but in my mind, because a child needs fact to mm -hmm. make sense of, a, of an event. We all do, but children right. in particular. So when we're not given a fact, we will make up fiction our subconscious will make up fiction 
to satisfy that need for fact. And that's what I did. I made up this story of, I kind of knew there was an accident. So I formulated this whole scene in my head. I was there, I saw the ambulance. Blah, blah. And you know, it was, wasn't until I was 21 that my uncle and I were talking for the first time about my father. I shared my story and he said, Jojo, that never happened. Hmm. And I thought, wow. But you were convinced. I need therapy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Wow. Yeah. That's when I knew I needed <clears throat> I needed some help. So when did when did things start to change for you for the better? Like when you started to recover. Um and I guess where I'm going, because I mean you're you're laying in bed, you're bedridden, you're you're all this the fears and insecurities and everything that I mean, obviously they're front and center. At some point, did your mind shift, uh, mindset shift, or like what was that moment where you're like, you know what, enough is enough, it's time to recover? Was that was that an emotional decision, or was it just physical? One day things started to come um, back to normal, or I think <clears throat> deep down, I I had a, a deep fear that I was going to die in the bed, mm -hmm. but just as strong or stronger than that fear of dying was this this spirit within me that knew i was going to do this i just didn't know how the hell i was going to do it so um i think shortly after i had ripped my body and i was sitting in this mess and i thought and i don't even know how many days in we were at that point probably uh probably two years in at least and I remembered a movie that I absolutely loved called Patch Adams with Robin Williams. Patch Adams was the unconventional physician um, from Illinois that, um, that treated with love, kindness, and compassion and humor, and still does to this day. And his insignia was a clown nose, and it was all about changing your energy and smiling and healing. And I hadn't smiled for months, years at that point. Um, crying, terror, shaking was my everyday norm. So I was thinking um, about that movie. It, it started kind of playing in my mind, but I didn't know what to do with it. It was kind of there and it was gone. The pain was coming. I, you know, when rehab started, I was doing 30 seconds a day and then I would have to recoup for two, three days at a time. Rehab was going mm. painfully slow. And the caregivers one night left a bottle of Tylenol beside the bed, which should never have happened. Um, and I was by myself and I poured the Tylenol in my hand and I went, you know, screw this shit, mm -hmm. not doing it anymore. This is too hard. It's too painful. It's too long. And uh, I'm going to die anyway. So let's just uh, cut to the chase. And I went to put the Tylenol in my mouth and I had an inspiration wall in front of my bed that was full of you know, inspirational um, sayings and pictures of people and um, a light shone. I don't know if it was a moonbeam. I don't know if it was a car headlight, but it shone on the face of my son. Mm. And I started crying uncontrollably. <laughs> I put the Tylenol back in the bottle, threw the bottle as far as I could across the room. And that was the moment I decided to live, even though I wanted to die. And the next morning, I thought, okay, Jojo, you've made the big decision. Now, how the hell do you put this into play? <laughs> yeah. And I started thinking more about Patch Adams. And I thought, okay, I gotta, I gotta get some control here. So the caregiver brought my lunch to me 
And on my tray was a baby bell cheese. Do you know what a baby bell cheese is? Yeah, a little yeah. red. Right. Peel it and the wax. <laughs> so I open the baby bell cheese and I'm I'm eating it and I'm looking at this wax and I'm like, huh, I can make a clown nose out of this. So I fashioned my clown nose. I popped it on my face and I laid there and I started to smile for the first time in some years. And I thought this is the coolest shit ever because I've just changed my energy in this moment by putting this thing on my face. So the caregiver came over and she's like, what are you doing with Joanna? And I said, look, look at me. And she started to smile. My son came home, did the same thing. And it became a, a thing that everyone that came to my house to visit had to have a, their picture taken with a baby bell cheese clown nose. So in that moment, it's when I realized I had a power within me because yeah. I could change that moment. I decided to call Patch Adams um, to get um, their address so I could send a letter to him. He ended up answering the phone to which I was just gobsmacked because to me it was, that's like seeing meeting the Beatles in my yeah. mind. Right. <laughs> so, uh, we talked and at the end, after about an hour, he said, Joanna, I'm going to give you a prescription. And I thought, perfect. He's going to tell me how to fix this. He's going to tell me how to get out of this bed and get my life back. And he said, I want you to write this down. I want you to put it on your wall. And I'm all excited. And the caregiver's there taking the notes. And he said, Joanna, take charge of your response to it all. Mm. And I thought, really? Really? That's That, that cryptic message is going to get me out of the bed? I didn't say that to him. I thanked him graciously. We did speak a couple of times after that. I put it on the wall. And it sat there for a good year, Brian, mm. before one day while my marriage was falling apart and it was ugly. It was, was not a neat, tidy separation and divorce. My son, who was uh, 15, 16 at the time, he's looking at me, looking for direction, for hope, for, for some signal that things were going to be okay. And I thought, I have got to do something profoundly different if I'm going to get out of this bed. And the impetus for me to get out of the bed was that kid that was sitting on the end of it. And I owe my life to that child uh, for many reasons and in many ways. And I thought, you know, I, I talk about this when I do motivational talks now. For me, it was like, you know, on a NASCAR track, what do they do? They turn left, right? Right. Mm -hmm. They turn left. They turn left and they turn <laughs> left. And what do they do? They go in a circle, right? Right. And that's what I was doing. I was on this friggin' never ending circle of pain and terror and fear and disempowerment. And I thought, okay, this ain't working. This, this is profoundly dysfunctional. It's what I know, but it ain't working. So I thought in order for me to get a different result, I'm going to have to embrace a new way of thinking, being, and showing up. I am going to have to go right into the unknown, into the abyss, into the what the F, right? Yeah. So I, I thought the only way I'm going to do this is to be vulnerable. I have to just feel this all. I have to let this all happen. I have to accept this. And I did. I went right. And a dear, dear friend of me, his name is James DeRoche. He gifted me five words. And he said, you're going to have to make them your own, but they're going to help you. And they were trust, acceptance, gratitude, commitment, and liberation. And I started studying these words every single day 
because that's all I had to do, right? 24 hours a day, seven days a week laying in the bed. So I dissected them and I made them my own. I found the purpose and the meaning in each one and each one of them were instrumental in helping me turn right a little more, turn right a little more and get myself into a new place, a new mindset. And instead of victim mode, I was headed towards the victor. Did uh, Patch Adams' words start to make sense to you oh, at yeah. that point? Yeah. Yeah. All, all, you- of a, all of a sudden, I kind of, I, I looked at the wall and it's like the aha moment, right? It's like the uh, cartoon character with the frying pan that gets hit. I'm like, oh, now I get it. Now I get it. The control was always within me. It's how I respond. It's the choices I make. That's how I'm going to get out of this. I have to take charge of my response to the pain, to the illness, to the people, to the loss, to the divorce, to, you know, Mm -hmm. to the responsibility, my son. I have to take charge of my response. And the way that I could do that was by instilling the the pillars. That's how I was taking charge of my response. And, And so how are you doing today? I'm sitting. You're sitting. <laughs> I'm sitting. Yeah. Um, yeah. I. If you saw me on the street, you wouldn't think there was anything wrong. Yeah. I can. I can function like a pretty much normal person. My biggest um, challenge right now is still um, energy. I had chronic fatigue um, and Epstein Barr during the um, during the bed years, and that that's a hard thing to work through. But I'm getting better. Um, but I'd say that's the, my number one thing that holds me back. Other than that, you know, I've ridden a bike. I mean, you're talking to a girl that, you know, two years on her right side, couldn't move her pinky, had to learn to walk again. I was in a walker for quite quite some time. I learned to drive again. Um, yeah, I can do I can do anything. And then how about on the uh, on the emotional um, battlefield? Are you? It has your way of thinking and your approach to life completely changed from oh. those darkest days? Oh my the, goodness! The fears they are they are the fears of you know um, loss or, or have? I guess my question is: when the fear pops up now, what's what's your approach? Well, I'll tell you something really cool, Brian, because. When I did the physical rehabilitation for my brain. So let's talk for a brief minute about neuroplasticity. So neuroplasticity is basically relatively new medicine, probably 25 years, that says that the brain is not hardwired. We can teach a new part of the brain to take on a new task. Mm. So that is how we rehabilitated my brain to get my body moving. Well, the cool thing is I thought, well, if we can do that, to get me to move differently. Wonder if we can do that to get me to think. So it's all about breaking old synapses. So I had synapses in the brain, you know, neurons that fire together, wire together, that saying. Mm -hmm. So my synapses were, I was hardwired for fear. So fear stimulus would come in and I took the fast train to fear and doubt. So what I started doing in the bed and sense because this is a daily discipline i broke those synapses and i rewired my brain for trust acceptance and gratitude so we have a a path of least resistance so normally you know we have a fear stimulus and it's like ah terror oh my god 
run, flee, distract, freak out, whatever the case is, right? And that was me. That's most of us, right? That's that's how most of us live. And it got to the point where, um, you know, now, because, and, and it's hard at first, this is work. Rewiring your brain and deciding to, you know, um, uh, have a new way of thinking, being and showing up, it is work. It's, you can make the choice in a second, right? but then it's work. And that work takes time. It takes a daily discipline, weekly, monthly, yearly. It's just part of your life. You're not going on a diet because we all know you go on a diet for a week, you go back to the old shit, right? Mm -hmm. This is about embracing a new way of being, period. So when I do my trust, acceptance, gratitude, my commitment, when I instill what I call my five pillars of transformation, what I've been able to do now over this period of time is I have paved a new path of least resistance. So when fear stimulus comes in, I no longer have that intense, out of balance, dysfunctional fight or flight response. There is a natural flight or flight response within all of us, right? That That's, that's just part of the human makeup and that that's healthy to have when it's out of balance and dysfunctional that's when you have to reassess and that's what i had to do so now something you know will come into my life someone will say something a circumstance a challenge i take it in practice the pause think about it instill my pillars work through in a peaceful balanced state and now that is not to say that i'm i'm little miss zen every day sure things upset <laughs> you things you know will go off the rails you get pissed off you but the difference now is that because i'm a full believer in in feeling and being vulnerable and honest don't bullshit me don't don't you know don't try and sugarcoat everything and make everything look like unicorns and 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 you know glitter dust that ain't reality and burying things is just you know that's just going to come up and bite you later on so for me i voice it if i'm upset if i'm angry if i'm frustrated i feel it i voice it i express it and then i move on i don't stay there it's a very short window if i ever react i don't react very often but when i do it's a very short window and then i'm in my peaceful place again and i do what i have to do and i'm very accepting whatever whatever life is you know putting before me this is what I, I try and, you know, teach people in my, my motivational talk, storytelling, whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, we have the power within us. You yeah. know, I, I spent, my book is called My Missing Peace, P-E-A-C-E, -E, um, because that's what I, I was starving for peace every day from the time I was a little girl to a teenager, to a young woman, as a young adult, as a, as a middle-aged woman, I just wanted a morsel of peace. Like, you know, I never felt like I could just breathe because there was another catastrophe that was going to happen. Um, and through writing my book and through the journey of, of rebirthing and and authenticating, I realized I was searching for something that was always there. It wasn't missing. It's, yeah. You've got me. It's not too often that I can't um, get my thoughts collected. You, you, you just, <laughs> you, I, I, I'm, I'm absorbing all this and I'm just, I mean, you've got me sitting over here inspired and um, yeah, they, it's just, 
I tell you what, I mean, I, I'm at a loss for words right now because I can't imagine four years in a bed not being able to do the things that I want to do. Um, I know about, you know, like I can relate totally to your five pillars of transformation because I've had to go through my own transformations as well. And 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 a lot of that is is the same um kind of concept behind it. Mm-hmm. But with your with your speaking and your writing, um, if somebody's listening to this this episode right now and they're kind of like I'm I'm feeling where it's like I now I want to know more. Like I I I just feel like we've kind of hit the tip of the iceberg with your recovery and because when I see you now, I mean, um, yeah, I could never imagine had had we not met and talked about your story. I I mean you look like the CEO of a business, you know, like you've got everything together and you're strong. And um, so n- no doubt somebody's listening to this and they're going to want to reach out and, 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 and maybe get in touch with you. How, how, how can, um, what's the best way to, to, to reach out to you? Uh, well, social media or. Uh, well, they can find me in different places. They can find me um, on Facebook at simply mm-hmm. Jojo Marie on Instagram at Simply Jojo Marie to learn more about my work, my story, to order my book, My Missing Piece. They can go to my website, simplyjojomarie.com. I also do a monthly um, mindful wellness article for Condo Nest, Adamo Nest magazine. Um, but my website's the best place. I mean, to order my book, you can go to my website, you can go to Amazon, Barnes and Noble, uh, Booktopia. Um, but yeah, to learn more about me and and my story, and you know, they can email me um, through the website. I'd be more than happy to talk with people. Um, there's quite a few groups that are doing um, uh, what do you call them? Uh, book clubs that are okay. reading my book, and uh, then I will do like an author's night with them, and and I love to just sit around and talk about you know. Yeah. What's what stirs in people? What uh, because fear is something that we all have in common, right? Yeah. Show me someone that isn't fearful or felt fear, <laughs> and I'll show you someone that's full of you know what lying so, to themselves. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, those are the best places. Simply JoJoMarie.com. And what's next? What's next for JoJo? What what's the next chapter that you're going to write? The next chapter. Well. My next project at the moment, I'm doing a webinar um, called uh, with uh, a colleague. His name is Anoop Danum, and um, it's called Let Love In, You Hold the Key. And that's all about, you know, loving ourselves, loving who we are, uh, loving where we've been, loving where we are today, and really setting the stage for allowing love to come in because um, through my work, it's all about being vulnerable. It's about opening up. It's about shedding armor and allowing ourselves to feel the love that's all around us. So that's a webinar that's going to be coming out. People can keep checking my website and social media because that's going to be in the next couple of months. In terms of writing, I'm not sure. I feel something stirring in me. I'm not quite sure what it is. Uh, But for me, it's all spreading the message of love, peace, compassion, vulnerability, um, and that we can conquer this world with kindness, the power is within us and um you know it's it's uh it simply begins with you there you go turn right you know just instead <laughs> of going left turn right 
Absolutely. Well, you, you've truly, you're, you're truly an inspiration. I have no doubt that you are going to be somebody else's patch Adams, if not already. Okay. I think they're going to look, look to your story and get a lot of strength out of that. And um, I just, I thank you for being on the show and thank you so much for sharing. Brian, thank you so much. That's about the sweetest thing anyone said to me. <laughs> so you're making me cry. Oh, but, yeah. um, thank you so much. It's been an honor. It's been a pleasure. We should do this again sometime. There you go. There you have it. My conversation with Jojo Marie Shalacy. I tell you what, what a great story of overcoming a major, a major Everest in one's life. You know, and these type of stories just really provide that that ray of hope, that that bit of inspiration that I think we all need uh, when times get tough. And, and we just have to remember that there is a way out. There is a road to recovery, no matter what the situation. So take a lot from this story. Make sure that you visit JoJo's website and social media. Of course, all the links will be provided in the description below. And, uh, you know, show her some love, show her some support. And uh, don't forget to share this episode and let everybody know uh, about uh, JoJo and Conquering Everest. So until next time, this is Brian, and I'm going to leave you with what I always leave you with. Aim high, be courageous, and go do amazing things.